You're listening to The Sweeper, the pan-European football podcast that brings you all the news from the 55 UEFA nations and sometimes a little bit beyond. On this episode of The Sweeper, we discuss King Arthur's horseback unveiling at Colo Colo, tell the story of the Sud Tyrol player in a car chase with police, and hear from German YouTuber Fiago about the sorry state of Schalke. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Sweeper Podcast, the global football show with myself, Lee Wingate, and my co-host, Paul Watson. We've got a diverse array of stories for you today, some great guests and an awesome competition. That's all coming up on this episode. But first up in part one, an alternative look at the transfer window. Uh, Paul, should we kick this off with some helicopters and horseback riding in Chile? Of course we should. So this is the return of Arturo Vidal to his boyhood club, Colo Colo. I think it's fair to say he made quite a big thing of it. It was um, it was one of the most spectacular announcements because it feels like they just kept adding more things onto their slate of ideas and did them all. So he arrives in a helicopter, which is cool enough, comes down and then is put on horseback and parades around with a lance in sort of medieval costume. I believe the reason for that is because his nickname was was King Arthur at certain points in his career. He's also been called all kinds of cool other nicknames like the Warrior and the Piranha because he's kind of a hard man. But yeah, this was an incredible unveiling. I've got to say 10 out of 10 unveiling in my opinion. Yeah, this was a very sharp contrast between the modern and the medieval wasn't it all in one video uh, I think it was a bit of a hit on social media if you haven't seen it the Guardian did publish the video on the Guardian Sport Twitter channel so I would very much recommend checking out this unveiling it made me think actually of the only other Chilean football transfer announcement video uh, that I know it's quite, quite a niche category that one this was uh, Alexis Sanchez playing the piano the glory, glory Man United song when he, he signed for Man United. I don't know if this rings any bells for you. No, it doesn't at all. But um, it sounds very cringeworthy. <laughs> yeah, it really was. He's sort of sitting there. Then he's got his collar up in sort of the Cantona style and he's, he's playing the uh, playing the glory, glory Man United theme tune. But safe to say the Arturo Vidal one was uh, significantly better. Of course, this got us thinking about other funny football transfer announcement videos and who better to ask for their opinions than our patrons so we got some really good suggestions Giraud says the Vizsla Plock announcement for Piotr Tomasic's contract extension uh, this was a Grand Theft Auto themed one uh, you can find this on YouTube it's like he's in game basically and he's he's in the car then he gets out closes the car exactly as the character does turns to the side walks like the character and, and then sort of walks in to sign his his contract. So that's a great one. And then, of course, we have to give a mention to Santi Cazorla's at Villarreal. Have you seen this one? No, no, I haven't. This shout came from Stephen Allen. This is basically, he's inside a glass container and there's a magician. To begin with, he's not inside the container. Then the magician brings down loads of smoke inside the glass, and then suddenly the smoke disappears, and who's standing there? Santi Cazorla, ready to be welcomed out and onto the pitch. And it's quite cool to be. I mean, it's totally unnecessary, but it's pretty cool. (laughs) It is, isn't it? And I love how unnecessary they are. By contrast, actually, I'd like to give a mention to our good old friends at uh, Hlantwit Major in Wales, who specifically do awful transfer announcements. They get someone on Fiverr, you know, the site where you can pay someone £5 to do work for you. They pay (laughs) someone on their £5 and see what they can come up with as an announcement, which I think is a brilliant counterpoint to all this, like, imagine how many thousands went into things like the Vidal one. (laughs) Then they just do this terrible, gaudy announcement, which which I always enjoy. Oh, have you got any examples? I'd love to know about some. I would I strongly recommend you have a look at them on Twitter. Um, they're just they're everything you'd expect for five pounds. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> all right, fair enough. I'm not sure if a football podcast has ever before segued from Arturo Vidal to Paris Hilton before, but uh, we're about to because uh, the next story in our transfer segment is the arrival of Paris Hilton's brother-in-law at Portuguese second division club 
Villaverdense. Courtney Royam is his name. And he's signed for, as I say, Villaverdense, second bottom in the Portuguese second division. Despite him being 45 years of age and having never played professional football before, was this the, the weirdest transfer of the entire window? Wow, yeah, I didn't know any of this. So they've they've signed somebody who's who's never played football what professionally. It, I mean, it's 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 just a marketing thing, is it? Is it is it to get mugs like us to publicise their club? Is that is that the plan? <laughs> well, I don't actually think it was because they didn't announce it. Basically, it was discovered by the Portuguese newspaper Abola, who realised that he'd been registered as a player. So then they approached the club for comment. And I love this statement, by the way. Villa Verdense's statement was, it was a choice of the scouting department. And then they said, age would not be a problem since Courtney Royam, quote, has the energy of a 20-year-old player. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if my scouting department started to bring me people who weren't actually football players, let alone the fact they're 45, I would probably fire my scouting department. I mean, because, yeah, having done a cursory Google of him uh, since we started talking, he is sort of a known person in various sort of business circles. He seems like someone who makes a bit of money out of, um, you know, companies and all that kind of startup stuff, you know, that people love to do in, in LA if you're if you want to sound important. But it doesn't sound like he's got any connection to football whatsoever. So I kind of need more information how he's been signed, basically. Yeah, apart from, I think, playing for his university team or his college team at, at one point, I can't really see any other connection to it. I really enjoyed, by the way, and I would not ever recommend going to The Sun for good quality football journalism. Uh, I enjoyed their description of this transfer because it was almost like it was some weird justification. So The Sun's website, the article said, his footballing abilities are not known and he has not even referred to them in any photographs posted on his social media channels. The Los Angeles-born ace has, however, been on the cover of a men's fitness magazine. <laughs> oh, therefore, a very obvious signing there. <laughs> well, I would love to see if he actually starts a game for them. What a very strange signing that is. I'd like to see also more completely random signings like this. People signing sort of people off the back of them doing a good TED talk or something rather than any sign that this guy should be playing football. This was, I think, even more random than the other Portuguese second division transfer announcement that we have previously discussed on this podcast. You will, of course, remember if you're a long-time listener to the show that last February, we told you the story of 56-year-old Japanese international Kazumura joining Oliverense. I had a little look on transfer marks just to actually see how much he's played. And he's still there. He's on a year and a half loan from the parent club, uh, Yokohama FC. And over five different appearances, he's played a grand total of 10 minutes. And my question is to you, Paul, do you think a year down the line that Courtney Royan will have played more than, than Kazumiura in the Portuguese second division? Oh, that's a fantastic question. I would go less. I would think he's going to play less, but he does have the energy, of course, of a 20-year-old, whereas Kazumira at this point in his career seems to have the energy of a 56-year-old. That was a signing that we sort of twigged was was more a strategic signing for the this relationship, you know, between this Japanese sort of ownership and the club, wasn't it? So we kind of sniffed that one out. The Courtney Rome one is is weirder, but I would love to see if he plays. Um, and if he plays against Kazumira, then who knows? <laughs> he could also be playing alongside the nephew of Clarence Seydorf, the Milan and Real Madrid legend. Sherwin Seydorf, his nephew, who hasn't played football since 2021, has also signed a contract with Villa Verdense to the end of the season. So they've got a businessman who's never previously played football and the nephew of a legend who hasn't played for three years. It doesn't really sound like this is the lineup that's going to dig them out of that relegation dogfight, does it? No, if I were them, I'd go in for George Ware's cousin, right? Bring, <laughs> <laughs> bring Ali Dia in. <laughs> uh, if you are not familiar with the story of Ali Dia, we were discussing that on the Discord with the patrons the other day. This is a story that in 1995 or 1996, someone purporting to be George Ware's cousin managed to blag himself a trial with Southampton and then got onto the pitch. And it is one of the greatest football stories out there. On to another great story next. And this has been voted as our lead story for this episode by 29% of our patrons. The release of FC Sud Tyrol's Amni Mutasim for, well, I'll let you tell it, Paul. 
<laughs> well, Amni Mutasim so plays for second tier Italian club Sudtirol and committed something of a faux pas, I think it's fair to say, when he um, stole the car of one of his teammates. More than that, though, stole the car from one of his teammates, got involved in a police chase at over 100 kilometers per hour in the center of Bolzano, which actually, if you've ever been to Bolzano, is not very well suited to car chases, was caught. And, well, all that it says, according to the article that I read on the Corriere della Sera, is that the club has released him for a breach of their ethics code. But it doesn't actually say that he's facing any criminal charges, which I wonder if the teammate, or his now his ex-teammate, actually just <laughs> didn't press any charges. I mean, it's an absolutely stunning story. There's no attempt made here to explain why he did it, except that uh, the 19-year-old kid, you know, actually doing quite well, sort of definitely a talented up-and-coming player, it says he conspired with a couple of his friends to steal the car of one of his teammates. I mean, there's never any good time to get into a 100 kilometer an hour car chase through a, a city, is there? But I think particularly having come right after he's made his first appearances in Serie B, he's obviously really set his career back by doing this. It's a bizarre thing to do. Yeah, he, um, he made his first appearance off the bench on the 23rd of December and played most recently on January the 13th. He's, he's then been on the bench for a few other games, but he's in the shake-up for first-team minutes, or he was, at a club that are, you know, upwardly mobile generally, but, you know, doing okay in Serie B. And, yeah, as the article that I read suggested, it referred to it as, I think, a crazy moment that is inexplicable. That's the word I would use, it's inexplicable. Manager's on fairly good contracts. There's definitely big money on on the horizon if he just sticks with it and can make a career in the second tier of Italian football. There's decent money there. I wonder what possessed him to steal a car full stop, let alone the car of one of his teammates. It's it's absolutely bizarre story. I'd I'd love to hear more about it when hopefully something more comes out about what why he's done this. I do hope he can get a career back on. I was going to say back on the road, but I don't think that's a good phrase. <laughs> I hope he can get his career sort of back on track because it'd be very hard, I imagine, after this. It's not necessarily something that clubs are looking out for, is it? Players that do something like this. I actually said to a friend of mine in Vienna who's from South Tyrol and comes from close to Bolzano, I said, did you hear about this? This player stole a car and then got into a 100 kilometer an hour car chase and her response was well 100 kilometers an hour doesn't sound that fast so <laughs> i guess <laughs> i guess they're used to more thrills in Bolzano. maybe more thrills than i thought i i kind of i don't know i don't know Bolzano very well but like a lot of north italian cities the city center is not very easy to drive around at all in fact it's quite easy to end up driving through pedestrianized areas if you, especially if you're an idiot tourist so um when i first read that that was my instinct too but i had this vision of him on the motorway and thinking god it's very reserved he's basically going at the speed limit <laughs> but i think he's we're talking about like windy little roads in the north italian town i think 100 kilometers now is perfectly fast enough this obviously got me thinking about other stupid footballer moments. And I came up with two categories, one which is actions and another which is words. So do you want to hear about actions or words first? I think we've got to start with words and then go to actions, haven't we? Yeah, so the, it, this was stupid footballer quotes, basically, and I came up with a couple. So I'll just read out my favourite ones. Are you familiar with Jason McAteer's pizza quote when he was a Liverpool player? No, I'm familiar with Jason McAteer, but I'm not, not his quote. Somebody at the club asked him uh, when they ordered a pizza for him if he would like it to be cut into eight slices or four slices. And he replied, four, I'm not that hungry. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, the next one I found was uh, former Slovenian footballer Sebastian Cimarotic. He once said in a TV interview, <laughs> this really made me laugh. <laughs> I'd like to say hello to my parents, especially my mother and father. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, lovely, lovely. Uh, over to actions next. Um, Mario Balotelli. He he was really the the main story that came out of this. Do you remember the time that he set his house on fire as a Manchester City player because he was firing fireworks from his bathroom window? Yes, I very much do. That was the one that always brings to mind with Balotelli. But I feel like you could almost make an entire 
book out of Balazelli's crazy antics, couldn't you? He's just seemed like he was always causing trouble wherever he was. Hence that why always me t-shirt. But uh, if you if you haven't previously seen the photographs of Mario Balotelli's bathroom after this firework display, please go Google Mario Balotelli fireworks bathroom right now. And I mean, stop the pod. It's okay. Google it right now because it is absolutely ridiculous. Like it, it's just totally destroyed tens of thousands of pounds worth of damage. And what I think makes it even funnier and really illustrates Mario Balotelli's total and utter insanity is that a couple of weeks later, he went round Mika Richards' house and then chased him round his house with fireworks. So I don't think he'd learned his lesson. But see, there's also some lovely stories about Balotelli, aren't there? That um, he, well, it depends what you call lovely, but there was a kid on the street who was being bullied by some some other boys and he went to the school like went up to the headmaster and demanded to discuss the issue sort of just took the boy under his arm and was like right this stops now and it's just these kind of lovely stories about him like being in a pub and just buying everyone in there a drink and having a nice chat with them and it just seemed like if you caught him at the right time he'd be the the best person to, to meet and if you caught him at the wrong time it was just carnage basically I think that's a fair assessment. Definitely a very enigmatic character. And on that note, we shall draw our transfer segment to a close. Time for us to take a quick break and then we'll be back with a couple of stories from some British overseas territories. You're listening to the second segment of this Sweeper podcast, where we are joined on the line by Surprise Shirts founder and friend of the pod, Louis Jones. In case you're new to the show, Surprise Shirts is a mystery football shirt company which sponsors Anguillan Club Uprising FC, and Louis has recently been out to the Caribbean to play for the club. Louis, welcome back to the Sweeper. Thanks for joining us. Hi, gents. Thanks for having me on. Ah, pleasure. Uh, tell us a little bit about how the sponsorship of this Anguillan Club Uprising FC came about. How does a bespoke football shirts company in the UK sponsor a club in the Caribbean? That's a that's a very good question. So um, we ran a competition uh, a few years back uh, around Christmas time for two tickets to join us in hospitality at Coventry City in our executive box, which we used to have. They were won by a guy called Gareth, who was a you know Twitter football blogger. Got talking to him at the game. Really interesting guy, and he told me about his involvement in Uprising FC. Obviously, a team in Anguilla. At that point, I had no idea where Anguilla was. As many people don't, you know, it's a, it's a tiny island, 15,000 people. So Gareth told me all about his involvement, said that how the games were live streamed, and just, you know, it really, really sort of piqued my, piqued my attention and curiosity. So I initially got in contact with the club about saying, look, we know companies that can make, make more interesting shirts for you. They were just like a plain grey design. I think it was made by Admiral back then. So we got talking like that. I introduced the club to, to Icarus, the manufacturer, and yeah, we, we went from there. They were really happy with how I'd kind of helped them work with the brand and, you know, the designs and everything. So they eventually, once we'd agreed on a, a design, I said, why don't we sponsor you? Uh, we'll have our logo on the shirt. We can send that out to our customers so they can be a brand representative of surprise shirts as well as Uprising. And the club was so happy with that. They asked me to come on board full time as the commercial director. Well, I, I say full-time, nothing in Anguillan football is full-time, but, you know, uh, voluntary permanent role, if that makes any sense. And, and so this this trip uh, that you've just made, this will be your first time experiencing Anguilla. What were your impressions of the place and, and the team? Uh, I cannot say enough good things about the island. It's First off, it's absolutely paradise. You know, the, the water is a, a shade of blue I've never, never experienced before. The beaches are just pure white. But I think the thing that struck me most is... Um, on such a small island, it's, you know, 16 miles long, three miles wide, um, and it's, you know, widest and longest points. The people are just absolutely incredible. I've never, never seen or been anywhere like it where everybody is so friendly. Everybody says hello. Everybody says good morning. Uh, people bib the horns of their cars as you walk past them. They wave. Um, we were we were treated so, so well. I cannot recommend Anguilla as a, as a destination enough, you know. It was such a, an incredible experience. It's changed my life and I cannot wait to go back. I think something that really piqued our attention, obviously, when you first announced you'd be going to Anguilla is that you'd be going to play in a match. <laughs> um, so tell us, A, a little bit about the match and B, how it was sort of regarded, how it went down that a sponsor was playing for the club. 
we were in the squad for two games. Essentially, to get to Anguilla, it's quite a, quite a convoluted route. It's such a small island, there's barely any direct flights. So we had to go from London, get the Eurostar to Paris, Paris fly to St. Martin, which is the next, like the, the nearby island, and then a 20-minute boat to Anguilla. So we arrived in Anguilla around, I think it was about an hour and a half before kickoff of the first game we were involved <laughs> with. Um, so we ended up getting to the stadium, like players had done their warm-up and Gareth and I were on the bench. So at this at this point, I don't, you know, I know who the players are because I'm really involved with the club and I watch every game from a distance. But they don't necessarily, well, they know they know who I am. They've, we've spoken on WhatsApp and things like that. But I've never met these people, so I'm a, uh, you know, just sat on, immediately thrown into this environment where I'm sat on a bench, like looking back at the stadium that I watch watch on a live stream, like every every time uprising play, like this is real, this is happening. So yeah, we weren't involved. We obviously were, we were named on the bench, but we were, we didn't come on in that first game. And I think that was fair enough. You know, I didn't want to ruffle any feathers by going, oh, I've travelled this way, so I have to have your starting spot. Like, especially when we'd come on a such a long journey, it didn't make sense to, to be involved straight away. The second game, which was a week later, which was against the champions, Docks United, um, we'd had a few training sessions in the week leading up to that. So I think Gareth and I kind of got a chance to, you know, rather than just burst in and go, right, we're playing, you know, we, we had a few sessions to prove ourselves and kind of go, okay, like we can cope with the standard of Anguillan football. And we obviously, we impressed enough that we both came on off the bench in the, the 83rd minute together, which was quite a nice, quite a nice moment. We, the team were, I think we were 3-0 down at that point, which was a really disappointing result, actually, because whilst Docs are the reigning champions, we've improved a lot as a team. And I don't think it was a 3-0 game, to be fair. One of them was a ridiculous penalty. That's another thing, the standard of refereeing, surprised me put it that way but yeah it was a it was a truly surreal experience I think the players were actually calling for us to play longer in the game I think we'd impressed enough in training they were especially Gareth they were they were hoping that Gareth was going to start in goal but yeah it was just to just to say I'm a say I'm a top flight footballer it feels like hey I'm kind of like stealing that claim and I don't really have a right to it but it was it's truly like the best experience of my life it's it was amazing I've got to say actually I saw a clip of some of these training sessions and um, it doesn't hurt that you're a pretty good footballer by the looks of it. I saw a clip of you and you, you scored a brilliant goal in training. So I was thinking, I wonder if the players are thinking, oh, good. You know, this, this, we've got a real asset here rather than being any kind of having to carry you. I think um, if you made a compilation of like a highlight reel of any one of us, I think we could look pretty good. I think that was more luckily like the best moment I'd pulled off was captured on camera. But um, yeah, I think the general consensus was, okay, like these guys that we're coming in, Gareth and I, especially Gareth, you know, Gareth's played at, obviously he's, he's in his 40s now, but he's, he won't like me saying that, but um, he's, you know, played at a high standard. He's been, I think, on the books of semi-pro teams uh, in his younger years. So he, he's, a, he's a goalkeeper that's capable, you know. Hopefully, I'd like to think we impressed the players enough to go, okay, like, you know, they can warrant coming here and, and you know, staking a claim to be on the bench, you know, so... The, the standard, I was impressed by the standard a lot, you know, the, the facilities in terms of where we train, it's just a kind of a rock pitch. And I know the FA, I had a meeting with the, the president of the FA and there's a lot of plans to change that. And the future of football on the island is really quite bright. There's a lot of plans for development. So I'm sure it will get better. But yeah, I'd like to think that they weren't, they weren't embarrassed by us coming. They were like, OK, this is a positive addition for the game. Finally, anything else you want to tell us about your trip and that we should know about Uprising? Yeah, so Uprising FC, we like to say we're the most professionally run club in Anguilla in a league where all the teams are amateur. So we like to do things differently. We're, we're made up of a few Anguillans. Obviously, Gareth and I are based in England and Pascal, our club secretary, is, is a German guy. So we're a really international club. We're active on social media, um, always looking for creative ways to engage with the community and sponsors and things. So, yeah, we're, we're definitely worth a follow online. If you want you know, a connection to a, a Caribbean football club, then Uprising is the club for you. And just a... Uh, one other thing I'd like to like to mention, I'd just like to say a huge thank you to Paul because genuinely Up Pompey was such an inspiration in kind of changing the mindset of, oh, one day I'd love to go to Anguilla, but it's never going to happen to reading the book and going, OK, if Paul was mad enough to do that, <laughs> we can kind of, you know, form our own our own version of the story as well. So, yeah, it, it, it truly did inspire me and Gareth. And, uh, yeah, we just want to say a massive thank you for that. That's, that's lovely to hear, actually. That means a huge amount to me. So thank you. Well, a big thanks to you, Louis, for coming onto the podcast. You can browse the surprise shirts range and place your mystery box order 
order at www.surpriseshirts.co.uk. Boxes cost £35.99 for adults and £26.99 for children. And Sweeper listeners get 10% off by using the discount code SWEEPER, all in capital letters. Louis has also kindly offered us two Uprising FC shirts to give away to our Patreon community. So perhaps you can describe the shirts to us briefly, Louis. Absolutely. So the, the home shirt is a sort of Peru 1970s style red sash, but uh, with a little sort of uprising twist in that it's got red red arrows coming up throughout the stripe. Uh, and it's it's the traditional uprising, just sort of a light grey colour for the home shirt. The away shirt really is, is something special. It was kind of, I'm biased, but it was kind of my brainchild. So it's it's a it's a Caribbean blue and it features an outline of the, the island in gold uh, around a centralised gold uprising badge. In the lower half of the shirt, fading fading downwards, is a repeated pattern of the three dolphins, which you can see on the Angolan flag. It's really a, a stunning shirt. Oh, that sounds absolutely delightful. Well, again, thanks so much for coming on to the show, and we'll catch up again with you soon. Absolutely. Cheers, guys. Take care. Louis Jones of Surprise Shirts there. A big thanks to Louis for coming on. If you want to win one of the Uprising FC shirts, all you have to do is sign up to our Patreon. One shirt will go to an existing patron who's already a member and the other one to someone who signs up for the Patreon within 10 days of the release of this episode, which is Saturday the 17th of February. So for a great chance to win a really incredible shirt, head on over to patreon.com forward slash sweeperpod. On to another British overseas territory next, and that is Gibraltar, where the first round of the Rock Cup has just taken place. And I noticed when looking at the results pool that one of the clubs involved in first round action was Hound Dogs, who lost 9-0 to Glasses United. Uh, Do you know what their unique selling point in Gibraltar is, Hound Dogs? Um, I don't actually know. Can, Can you enlighten me? I was enlightened by Dan Griffin, who is the co-founder of Football Jib. That's a really good Twitter page all about Gibraltarian football. He explained to me that they are the only non-top flight club and the last truly amateur club in Gibraltar taking part in the Rock Cup. So this is basically the only club from outside Gibraltar's 11-team league that plays in the competition. Uh, Okay, so that makes a lot of sense of that scoreline then. They really are up against it, I imagine. It must be very hard to be the amateur club because you're always by nature and you know at a disadvantage everyone you play I suppose yeah and I think a lot of people would probably say well isn't Gibraltar a largely amateur league but Dan was explaining to me that pretty much all clubs pay their players at least something whereas Hound Dogs are basically a Sunday league team and their backstory is quite interesting because we've talked before about Bruno's Magpies the club that was basically formed in in Bruno's bar in Gibraltar and Hound Dogs it's a similar story because the initial sponsorship for the club came from a pub called the Calpe Hounds so basically more than one pub team in Gibraltar and I really and the only way we'll see this is in the Rock Cup but I really want to see Bruno's Magpies play against Hound Dogs so we have the pub derby I would love to see that the pub derby (laughs) El Publico (laughs) (laughs) yeah wouldn't it be great basically what happened in Gibraltar a few years back is that they they used to have two divisions and they then merged all into one and it was at this point that Hound Dogs realized that they wouldn't be able to compete financially with the teams that would, would all be in this this one top division. And so they were given a special exemption, a special permission by the Gibraltar FA to um, play in the under-23 league as a fully senior team and yet still play in the Rock Cup. That's really interesting because when you said that, I thought suddenly they don't. there isn't a second tier as such, is there? So when you're saying about the, them not really wanting to professionalise, I was thinking, well... Maybe the solution is to go and, you know, voluntarily be in the lower league. But if there isn't one, it seems like that was a very enterprising solution to allow them to to exist in this way. I mentioned just a minute ago that the uh, Gibraltarian League has only 11 teams, which is obviously a a bit of a strange number. There used to be 12. Uh, One team that disappeared a couple of years back, Boca Gibraltar, which I really like because this is sort of a play on words of Boca Juniors and the Rock of Gibraltar, which is, of course, the most distinctive feature in Gibraltar, hangs over the the, the National Stadium. Uh, Boca Gibraltar folded in 2020. This was because they had some financial problems and couldn't pay their players. So their players then refused to play and they'd already had two violations of the homegrown player rule. So basically all these offences came together and they were stripped of their licence. 
And that's meant that the league has sort of very awkwardly had 11 teams ever since. Because when you think about it, that means there's always one team that has a fortnight break between games. Yeah, 11 is a really ugly number, isn't it, for a, for a league? Um, it's quite a good reason you don't have 11 team compositions. I mean, what, what I think seems to come through whenever I do read up about Gibraltarian football is how hard it is for clubs there to make this work. And I certainly saw quite recently a lot of clubs, certainly Manchester, there's a club called Manchester, isn't there? Um, and they were not paying players, is what people were saying. And there was also another club, I believe, who weren't able to pay their players on time. And that there was this this practice that seemed to be going on that clubs get given money for youth players and then they use that to pay their senior squad. And that that's not explicitly forbidden, but it's sort of poor practice. But all of it seems to point to the fact that clubs are just struggling to make the, the model work in Gibraltar. Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising really that a league is hard to operate when it's all going from one stadium in a territory of, of six kilometres squared. I think it's kind of a, a miracle that they have a league. You mentioned just a second ago, Manchester 62. And that moves us on nicely to the final thing I want to talk about in this segment about Gibraltarian football, which is the English influence on some of the club names. So do you know why Manchester 62 are called Manchester 62? I, I don't. So first of all, uh, they were called Manchester United because in the 60s, when they formed, they asked the then Manchester United manager, Matt Busby, for permission to use the name. And he said, yes. So they were called Manchester United for a while, but then rebranded to Manchester 62 to reflect the year that they were formed. So that's Manchester 62. But there are there are some other clubs in the league as well that have a very English influence. So Lions Gibraltar, they were named and themed after England's World Cup win in 1966. And they actually have uh, three lions on their badge as well. So that's, you know, even more English influence. And the one that I think is most interesting, and I never knew this, despite having spent quite a bit of time reading into Gibraltarian football, Lincoln Red Imps between 2002 and 2007 were called Newcastle United. I didn't know that. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Because... Bruno's Magpies, are, not, are they not called Magpies because the first sort of coach stroke president, I guess, was a Newcastle fan? Is that, isn't that right? So actually two clubs would have been Newcastle-based clubs at that time. Actually, I think Bruno's Magpies were formed after this period in time. So I don't think there would have been an overlap. But yeah, it's just quite interesting. The article I read said the club enjoyed the patronage of former Newcastle chairman Freddie Shepherd, who had a property in Gibraltar. Um, so that probably sort of goes some way to explaining why there was a club named Newcastle United. But yeah, Lincoln Redimps, who themselves are named after Lincoln City, that's where their name comes from. It seems like they can't quite work out which British club they want themselves to be named after. That is very interesting. I mean, obviously, you have this incredibly close link between Gibraltar and the UK, but it's a really fascinating place. And I, it's somewhere that I would love to get to a game. You, you've, in fact, been, have you not, to a... Did you go to a Rock Cup game there before? Yeah, the Rock Cup final 2022. Really interesting place to go. Uh, I got a lot of really good information from the guys at Football Jib while I was there and then saw Bruno's Magpies come agonisingly close to winning with this incredible long-range goal only for Lincoln Red Imps to, to come back as they do and score twice in stoppage time. So that was a little bit heartbreaking. But yeah, I'd recommend it to any any groundhoppers who want, you know, some, some nice food, some good weather. And you can basically go into the stadium and just watch all the games in one day because they're all played one after the other at the same stadium. So yeah, very interesting place, Gibraltar. It's definitely on my bucket list. <laughs> time for one more break and then we'll be back for part three to talk about a Mongolian cyclist, hear about a falling German giant and read some of your emails. Welcome back to the third and final segment of the pod, which we're going to kick off by revisiting a previous story from the show. Longtime listeners of this podcast might remember that last May, we told the story of Mongolian footballer Ochiru Batbold and his incredible cycling expedition from Ulaanbaatar to Old Trafford to see his beloved Manchester United play. And you may have seen on Twitter, after 275 days on the road, 15 different countries and 12,500 kilometres covered, he finally arrived to stay with me in Vienna on Saturday evening. And we had some very nice words to say about a former coach of his. You! <laughs> I like that you said me because for a sec I was thinking who? who? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I asked him if you were a, a tough going coach or a nice coach, and he said, no, always nice. So he's only had good words to, to say about you. And lots of really interesting stories from the whole trip. It sounds like it's been pretty much the adventure of a lifetime for him. On the first edition of his trip, he went all the way to Turkey and then found out that he couldn't get the visa he needed for the next part of his trip unless he went back to Mongolia. So it was a big setback there. He had to go back to Mongolia, get the visa, and then fly back to Turkey and resume. But this is one determined young man. And he, yeah, he's not given up. He's now in Vienna. And the other day, he came with me to his first ever non-Mongolian football match. We went to see Rapid Vienna against St. Poten in the Austrian Cup, which was, which yeah, it was a lovely occasion. I imagine it's quite a culture shock as well, because one of the things I really noted in Mongolia was just how there isn't a massive culture of going out to games and watching your team. So the national team these days, when they play their rare fixtures, do get a decent crowd and quite a loud one. But league matches, even the best teams in the league, play to pretty deserted and quiet stands. So I'm imagining Fuachiro... To, to just be in that kind of atmosphere must be must be pretty exciting and, and something he's only seen on TV in the, in the past. Yeah, you could tell it made quite a big impression on him because, I mean, the Rapid Vienna Stadium wasn't sold out by any means. It was quite a cold and windy evening as it, as it tends to be in Austria at this time of year. There are about 15,000 people there. But on the stand behind one of the goals where the, the, the Vestribüne, it's called, where all the Rapid fans stand, it does get very loud and very atmospheric. There were quite a lot of flares. Um, yeah, he got some really good photos and I think he had had a really good time there. And he also, of course, um, came with me to watch Manchester United because I think he tries not to miss a game on the trip. So we went to uh, an Irish pub to watch Manchester United beat West Ham 3-0. And I'm just so hoping that by the time he gets to uh, England, and I think he's hoping to get to Manchester for his birthday on the 9th of March, that they, they really make him welcome and that somebody somewhere can sort him a Manchester United ticket for that game against Everton, which will be on his birthday. If if he has travelled that length to get there <laughs> and he can't get into the stadium, then we know that football is truly and utterly gone. I have been trying to, you know, very unsubtly sort of dangle this story out there on social media, just see if the club get in touch. And we haven't had anything yet as definitive as the club saying we'd love to welcome him. I really hope it does happen um, because, yeah, he deserves he deserves to be made to feel like a hero, really, for doing it. And it says a lot about the relationship that people abroad can have with their clubs. People can be quite snooty about this. I've seen quite a lot of disparaging comments about the overseas followers of of big Premier League clubs. And while I was always sad in Mongolia that people didn't rally around local football more, and that was kind of my mission there, I have to say it's also a really special connection and the, the, the passion and the commitment these fans put in to watch these games at, sometimes at crazy times of day. It, it, they really are huge fans of the club, whichever way you look at it. And and I hope, yeah, I hope Ochoa gets a chance to finally experience that in person. Yeah, me too. He will be continuing his journey, I think, tomorrow. He's heading up towards Linz, then Salzburg, crossing the border into Germany. I think he wants to head up to Dortmund because not only are, are Borussia Dortmund there, but also uh, the German Football Museum. So I think there's a, you know, there's a trend here. It's a very football-themed journey. Uh, then he'll be heading up into France where he needs to then get a visa for the UK. Yeah, very exciting. And if you are in any of those places that I just mentioned and want to offer any kind of support or a friendly face to an extremely nice guy, uh, then drop him a message at mr.wazza, that's W-A-Z-Z-A, on Instagram. Or send us an email alternatively at sweeperpod at gmail.com and we will put you in touch. And similarly, if you live in the Manchester region or happen to be a match-going fan, and you think you might be able to help Ochiru get a ticket, do let us know. That would be great. Next up today, we're going to be talking about a fallen giant. Paul, you noticed a story that piqued your interest recently. Yes. So I've been keeping an eye on Schalke. I think everyone who has watched a fair amount of, of European football over the years will remember Schalke um, from you know Champions League campaigns relatively recently. Well, they are down the bottom of the second division in Germany. And it appears that they are facing a, a fight for their lives in, in sort of more ways than one. Yeah, to hear a little bit more about what's going on at Schalke, we caught up with German football YouTuber Fiago, short for Finn Paolo Agostinelli, who told us a little bit more about what's going on at the club. Hey guys, Fiago here. Love what you're doing and appreciate you having me on the podcast 
Talking about Schalke now, wow, that is an interesting topic. As much as it is a sad one, right? Because their downfall, I think, can only be assessed going way back in, in the past, more than a decade at least, because their board, this club as a whole, but especially the board, has been spending and living above its means, well, for years and years. But the thing is, it's always been covered up by the fact that the club, because it is a huge club with a huge fan base, has always been successful on the pitch. I mean, finished top four in the Bundesliga many seasons in the 21st century, most of the time top six, got some second place finishes as well. Champions League semi-final in 2011 after knocking out uh, reigning champions. Inter only lost to Manchester United in the semis, still keeping players like Manuel Neuer and Raul. And um, talking about players like Manuel Neuer, the youth academy is a huge huge factor for them as well that always helped them cover up those crazy spending habits the board had for example uh, Manuel Neuer or Leroy Sané that they produced and I think sold for 50 million euros in 2016 to Man City so that always helped them cover up but I think the real turning point happened in oh there were two actually because one of them was obviously the pandemic that hurt every club especially in Germany because German stadiums stayed closed for longer than, for example, in England, and especially Schalke, because Schalke re rely on their matchday revenue even more than some smaller clubs, uh, because 60,000 uh, capacity stadium, more than that, a uh, huge fan base, most of their revenue, of course, or a lot of their revenue uh, came from that. And um, yeah, and also, of course, the league was paused for a bit. TV revenue was, was lower as well. Obviously, all clubs had that. But then as clubs started to recover, 2022, Schalke were faced with another major blow that basically no club had. And that was the loss of their main sponsor, Gazprom, because of the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, because Gazprom is a state-owned uh, Russian gas provider. And um, that obviously, that contract had to be cancelled by Schalke. And financially, it meant a huge, huge loss for them because it was one of the biggest sponsorship contracts in German football. And, and if you look at the figures also, when you compare where Schalke by then already were on the pitch, because they were already in the second division by then, they were hugely being overpaid. So uh, yeah, that was a huge blow for them. They did get back up into the Bundesliga in 2022, though. They managed to. And then people thought, okay, maybe they're back, but no got back relegated in their first season. And from that moment, back in the second division, basically August 2023, everybody knew, no, they're not going to go back up. They basically had no money left. But nobody really expected the, the downfall to be this crazy. Now, if they actually go down, then many people close to the club, many sources say they won't even get the license for the third division, which means um, they would have to start over as an amateur club. Maybe in the fourth division, maybe in the fifth division, who knows? Either way, it just, it's just unimaginable for a club with the size of Schalke. We can only hope for the sake of football, for the sake of all those fans, that they at least stay in the second Bundesliga. But it's, after all, objectively, you could say, yes, they don't deserve any better after mismanaging for so, so, so many years. But from the perspective of a football romantic, Honestly, I hope that they find back to glory days. Wow, that was super interesting. Thanks very much for that, uh, Fiago. What did you make of, of that, that sort of sorry tale for Schalke? It's a really crazy story, isn't it? And um, something about just how dramatic this makes this relegation battle now, I think, that's, um, that it is an ex existential fight. I saw actually a hilarious tweet, which, you know, we shouldn't laugh at their plight, but they've just signed a player, uh, Brandon Soppy, and... There's a photo of him being introduced, everyone shaking hands with him, and they all look quite tense. And someone's tweeted to say, no pressure, whole future of the entire club just rests on your shoulders. <laughs> it's both, in, the, in that sense, stories like that, they're funny, but it's so sad at the same time, because this, this is one of Germany's biggest clubs, one of its best supported clubs. I'm a Borussia Dortmund fan, and, you know, we don't want to see Schalke get relegated anymore. We want Schalke to come back up to the Bundesliga because that's where they belong. And, you know, the Revier derby, the Ruhr derby between Dortmund and Schalke is one of the best derbies in Europe. So it's, it's extremely sad. And one thing I think would be good to clear up is that people might be wondering, well, why might Schalke 
get a license now for the second division, but not be granted one for the third division and therefore be forced to go down to the regional leagues. And uh, the answer I got from the guys at Get German Football News, who were very helpful, they basically explained that uh, another uh, relegation would see a sponsors pull out, which would leave them on an even more shakier ground after the Gazprom withdrawal. And then the fact that Schalke have a lot of debts, they have 165 million euro of debt. And the third division in Germany stipulates that clubs have far less debt than clubs in the second division so that that avoids clubs then folding halfway through the season. So that would then be basically the biggest barrier, I think, to them getting a third division license. Really sad to see that. And and I guess in that in that sort of apocalypse scenario, what we might see happening is the formation of a new Schalke club. I don't know how German rules are for that, but you see this sometimes in, in English football. If a club has completely capitulated and dissolved, you, you see fans and you know groups around the club just starting a new one and going from the bottom upwards uh, and maybe taking more control of, of the way the clubs run. Well, as I say, a very sad story. If you want to find out a little bit more about Schalke's current plight, then do follow Thiago. There's a great YouTube vlog he did recently of attending their game against Hamburg. So would definitely recommend that you check that out. Thiago, F-I-A-G-O. A big thanks to him for his contribution. And he was actually the person who set in motion an interesting chain of events for us on Friday evening because he asked who wanted to join him for the Prague derby between Slavia and Sparta in the cup on Wednesday, the 28th of February. We responded with a raised hand, and within a short amount of time, we were kindly offered tickets by Slavia to watch that game and have a tour of their stadium. I think I speak for both of us, Paul, when I say we're really looking forward to this one. Yeah, absolutely. And um, really lovely to see a club respond like that, isn't it? We were saying it's it's quite bizarre for us because we still feel very much like a very small underdog pod it's really quite flattering that a club of that size would even take note of of who we are and we're yeah be honored to be at that game it'd be a, a fantastic experience and the best part which we haven't mentioned yet is that we're going to take one of our listeners with us for the whole experience this will be the first trip you and i have ever done together and so one Uh, I'm not sure if we should say lucky one, perhaps unlucky listener will be along for that ride with us. Uh, All you have to do to be in with a chance of winning is to sign up to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash sweeperpod and be a member by 7pm UK time on Sunday, the 11th of February. Bit of a tighter deadline with this one because obviously... The game is coming up quite soon. We will provide the winner with tickets for the game and the stadium tour and a one-night hotel stay in Prague. All he or she has to do is be available. It is midweek, so it's a bit trickier. And to book their own flights to Czechia from wherever they are based. So what a week for Patreon giveaways. We really do go for it with our Patreon giveaways. And I think it's fair to say the kind of things we give away are not things you're going to get anywhere else. Yeah. Have you ever been to a Czech game before, by the way? I haven't asked you this yet. I've not. I've not even been to Czechia. I'm one of the ah. few people. I've I've never been there. So I'm really excited to go, really excited to go to this derby. And the fact that they are the two absolute you know, runaway powerhouses at the moment in, in Czechia makes it even more mouthwatering. Absolutely. So if you want to be in with a chance of joining us for that, do remember, go over to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash sweeperpod. All right, we're going to round off this episode by reading out a couple of listener emails because we've got some really good emails from listeners recently. So we wanted to take some time to read them out. Andrew from Russia has got in touch based on a question we asked some time ago about what is the most obscure country you've listened to our pod from? And he said he almost watched a game in North Korea. So Andrew's mail, uh, Buongiorno Sweeper Crew. A good few weeks ago, you did a pod asking about the most extreme locations from where people had listened to your podcast. I'm just wondering, has anyone managed from North Korea yet? Sadly, neither have I, but I came bloody close. Last September, I took a five-day train from Western Siberia to Vladivostok to run the marathon out there. And obviously, I stored up an episode to listen to while looking out across the Sea of Japan towards said country only a few kilometers away. That trip was heartbreaking, incidentally. My local team, FC Tumen, were drawn away in round four of the Russian Cup to face none other than Dinamo Vladivostok on the exact same week I was traipsing across an entire continent. The matches were being held from the 26th to 28th of September, but this game was held just hours after my train pulled into Vladivostok. Love the work you guys do bringing utter insanity to my ear. Keep it up. 
That's amazing. Yeah, our North Korean following as yet appears to be limited. But would we know? Would we know? I don't know we'd be allowed to know if the, if it wasn't. <laughs> so. Yeah, very true. Uh, next up, I think you've got an email from Sid in Australia. Yes. So this is from uh, Sid, who is from Sydney, which, you know, I wonder if that causes him trouble every day. Um, <laughs> it says, so we're talking about odd international heritage and players who represent places you wouldn't necessarily think of. And it said, um, a bit of an odd one is uh, Jordi Amat. So played for Swansea City and he's from Catalonia. Sid says, following my country, Australia, in the Asian Cup, I was shocked to see the same guy, Jordi Amat, representing Indonesia. Turns out he not only has Indonesian heritage, but is descended from Indonesian royalty. He is a descendant of the 14th and 17th kings of Siao Island and has been officially awarded the title of Pangaran, which means prince. That's, that's quite stunning, isn't it? That is, that's not just uh, having heritage. That is, that is really having heritage. Yeah, well, I mean, we've not been able to verify the family tree, so we'll have to trust his word on that. But yeah, that's, that's, that's a pure sweeper email, that one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really is, isn't it? I, I love how some of our, our listeners' minds work so similarly to ours. It's, it's just exactly the kind of thing I would have descended into. Uh, well, we've got the most sweeper email of the lot coming up last. This is from Tristan Davies in Belgium. I really like the fact that the title of this email ends with a question mark. So he says, my Welsh dad got a cap for Nepal, question mark. Um, so it almost almost seems like it's down to us to decide if he did or not. This is what he says. Hey, sweeper pod, weird story about an international cap. When my dad was younger and was traveling through Asia, he managed to get a cap for Nepal playing against Calcutta Police. At the time, the Nepal manager was Graham Roberts, ex-Spurs. My dad watched a few training sessions and then got an invite to play a friendly for the national team, Tristan. That's absolutely amazing. That sounds like something that did happen. <laughs> I'm guessing because it was a friendly and uh, yeah, and maybe it was a slightly different time. I'm not sure that would happen now if you were just there watching Nepal. I wonder if he knew if he'd formed a sort of relationship with the coach. I mean, there are some unanswered questions, certainly, but it does sound like something that would be an amazing story to have to to sort of tell people at dinner parties, wouldn't it? Certainly would. Well, I think that is the perfect place to round off this episode, unless you've got anything else you want to chuck in, Paul. No, no, that was, that. I think, again, we've covered a fair bit of the world there. Yeah, certainly did. All right, then. Well, we'll leave it there. We'll be back for the next main podcast on Wednesday, the 21st of February. 